If you can, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark 1, 29 through 39, NIV. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of the Lord. Good morning to you all. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've been here at Midway, I guess, over six years now, I think. And uh, there's been a lot of prayer requests that have been put in the newsletter, a lot of prayer requests that have gone out on the hotline. And most of them, almost all of them, are in relation to a problem. So there's an illness that someone's experiencing, there's an upcoming surgery, somebody's experiencing some challenge in their life. <clears throat> and that is completely understandable why that's the time we tend to put out those prayer requests, right? Problems, whether they're our own or others, tend to drive us to prayer. They tend to drive us to God as they should. But what about success? How often do you see a prayer request go out on our hotline saying, I just got a promotion at work and I need prayers? How often do you see, I just came into an inheritance, I just got a bonus, and I need prayers for discernment on what to do with that? I don't think I've ever seen that actually go out. But in our passage for today, there's a lot going on But in our passage we could look at, but I want to look at one thing. I'm interested in the way that Jesus handles success. That Jesus models to us as disciples, as those who follow Jesus, follow his example, that we don't just go to God when things are wrong, we do, we go when things are right. Let me, let me just give you a little picture of how Jesus' uh, public ministry starts. I think to say that his ministry was off to a good start would be an incredible understatement. Mark's gospel, Jesus emerges from nowhere, from this tiny little town in the hills of Nazareth, Nazareth, hills of, uh, around Galilee. Remember when John's gospel, we looked at this a few weeks ago, Nathaniel just boxed at this idea that, that anything good can come from Nazareth. Like, well, let, let's see what happens uh, comes from Nazareth. The first thing Jesus does is he goes head-to-head -head, uh, with Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and resists him. Not bad. Comes back up to Galilee, starts saying to people, follow me, and they do. Impressive. He begins to teach, and people are just like, their minds are just being blown by his teaching. Drives out a demon in synagogue with a shriek, and we kind of yawn. 
40 days with Satan? Did you see Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey last Sunday? Did you see the performance they put on? Now that was impressive. I get it. I get it. We're a little bit anesthetized to all these stories. We're a little bit too familiar with all these stories to have much of a wow factor. But just think about the success that Jesus is experiencing. Imagine uh, the, the charisma that it would take to go up to a person and say, follow me, and they do. Right? Try that sometime. Go down, downtown Columbiana, find somebody and tell them to follow you and let me know how that goes. I'll take this one. I'll take this one. Imagine what it would like to preach a sermon, and people are just like, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Never happened to me before I've gotten some nice sermons. Um, I've gotten some hints that maybe the sermon went a little too long. Never have I gotten this. What is this? What would that do to a preacher's ego? Imagine what all this power, all this charisma, all this authority, all this adulation would do to a person. What would it do to their ego? And now Jesus leaves the synagogue. That's just all that's happened up to before our passage. He goes over to Simon and Andrew's house, goes to Simon's mother-in-law who has a fever, and just heals her just like that. So now, this for the first time in Mark's gospel, we're seeing a new power that Jesus has. Jesus has the power to heal. And the village goes bonkers. I mean, there's no other way than saying that. It just goes nuts. It's like Beatlemania has come to the village. Because look at what the text says. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Can you imagine the scene here? Everybody who knows somebody who is sick is grabbing them and bringing And before we know it, around this house is the entire town. There's a healer in town. Words got out. Sabbath is now over. Boom. The whole town starts to gather where Jesus is. And now Jesus is really coming in to an understanding of the power he wields. Every kind of disease. All kinds of diseases. Do you know that? You know what impresses me? Here's what impresses me. What impresses me is when somebody goes to medical school for four years, they then go to general residency for three years, they then specialize in two to three years of a fellowship, they become very highly specialized doctor, and they can do, cure one disease. They can perform one kind of surgery. I am blown away by that. Jesus was trained as a carpenter. He's from little nowhere in, in the hills of Galilee. Guy preaches like Billy Graham. He amasses followers like Taylor Swift. And he is a one-man Cleveland clinic. <laughs> that is impressive. I, we have to bring in Taylor Swift to get like a wow factor with Jesus, which is interesting. But what do you do next? What do you do next with that kind of success? Like you're in the beginning stages of building a movement. You're coming into the awareness of the incredible power that you possess People are flocking to you, and you're lying in bed that night. What do you do? Your head is spinning. Verse 35, here's what Jesus does. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, 
left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Right? Jesus goes off and prays for himself. A little surprising, right? Certainly surprises his disciples because when they get up, I assume they get up and they realize, hey, where's Jesus? They seem to maybe have some idea where he went. They go and find him. Simon's leading the pack. Um, the, the, the NIVs, the little Bible scholars will tell you it's too soft. It's better translation is probably they hunt him down. Right? They're, they hunt him down. And when they find him, they're like, they're not like, hey, I, Jesus, can we join you in prayer? They're like, everyone's looking for you. Which in my mind is like, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere praying? Do you understand what is happening back in Capernaum? Everybody's looking for you. What you did yesterday was incredible. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. Let's go somewhere else. Why on earth would we go somewhere else? Do you understand the movement that is starting? People are flocking. This is what we need. What's going on here? Like, what happened in that solitary place in the wilderness where Jesus went and prayed? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, right? We don't get into Jesus' head here. Mark doesn't tell us, but we can, we know a few things. We know that Jesus had incredible success that I went through in Capernaum at the launch of his ministry. We know the whole town is gathering around him. We know that people are flocking to him. And we know he goes out and prays, and suddenly he discerns it's time to go. Right? Which is a shock to his disciples. What's going on here? I guess I'm wondering, again, I'm speculating a little bit here, is Jesus tempted by the success he has? If not here, I think we can say safely Jesus was definitely tempted by success. That may be a little bit strange for us to think like Jesus. No, he's not tempted by success. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted, listen to this, in every way. In every way. Anybody ever here been tempted by success? You don't have to raise your hand. Success is a constant temptation. Meaning that Jesus was tempted in every way. He did not sin, yes, but he was tempted. I think this is such an incredible, I just find so much consolation in the statement. Jesus understands us. Not only does he understand our failures, he understands what it's like to have success. I think sometimes we, we, I've noticed that people, I think, struggle more with the human Jesus than the divine Jesus. I, th I think sometimes we think that, like, God, Jesus is God in disguise. Like, God is kind of, like, sneaking around on earth. Like, God put on this disguise, Jesus, and God's just kind of, like, sneaking around on earth. He's not really human. He's just God in disguise. It's easy to think that way. That is not our profession. That's not what we profess as Christians. Our, the, the Orthodox profession as Christians is not that God came disguised as a human. The Orthodox profession, worked out by the early church fathers in the ecumenical councils, is that Jesus is fully human, 100% human, and fully divine, 100% God. That's very different than a divine God coming in disguise. Jesus is not 10% human and 90% God. He is 100% human and 100% God. Meaning, he was tempted in every way. He was tempted by success. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how aware Jesus was of the power he had, but as he launches this ministry, go back to me, 
Go back to healing every disease. Can you imagine that? Healing every disease? People are just beside themselves. Think about what that would do to your ego. There's a, there's a, there's a joke, maybe you've heard a variation for it. I don't tell many jokes, so enjoy this one. Um, Charlotte was getting mad at me for not putting jokes on the marquee. So here's your joke, Charlotte. All right, here's a joke. It's about a world-famous surgeon, uh, and after this long life, the surgeon dies, and he's uh, he, he asleep one night, and he finds himself at the pearly gates. Not very good eschatology, but he finds himself at the pearly gates, and there's this extremely long line. And the surgeon, he's been waiting for, for what seems like eternity, and he doesn't think he should have to wait in this line. So he, he gets up to St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, and he says, I'm Dr. Gregory Smith, world-famous surgeon. While on earth, I saved many lives and cured uncounted illnesses. I don't think I should have to wait in this line. And Peter curtly said, here in heaven, everyone is treated the same. Go to the back of the line, please. So the surgeon, he, he goes to the back of the line, and then he notices this guy who's got a, a leather bag and a stethoscope, and he's clearly a doctor, and he's walking up to the front of the line, and, and Peter's just waving him right through, and he's just furious. And the doctor, he runs up to Peter, and he says, why is that? Why did that doctor get to go through? And Peter smiles, and he says, oh, that was God. Sometimes he just likes to play doctor. Right, there's plenty of doctors out there that don't have massive egos, but the joke is kind of funny because there is a tendency for doctors to let their egos get out of control. And again, I know many, many doctors who are not at all like that. But it's not just doctors. It's not just people who heal whose ego can get out of control. The temptation is for anyone who experiences success, no matter how small. No matter how small that success is, it has a way of swelling our pride and giving us a sense that we're in control. You do not have to do spectacular things to get an ego, right? You do not have to be a, a world-famous surgeon to get a sense of power and pride. I'll tell you a story that will really lower the stakes from a, from a surgeon. When I was managing a farm in Illinois, a very small farm in the middle of nowhere, um, our biggest crop was, was typically strawberries. And so... It, it was a big deal to have a good strawberry crop because that was usually the first kind of flush of cash that came into the business. And in many ways, we kind of could tell how was this season going to be by the strawberry crop. And so, um, so, so I, had to take o I had taken over management of the strawberries. I kind of was forced into taking over the management of this crop. And I made some changes in how I managed them. I, I really tried to bump up the fertility program. I made some changes on the way we cultivated our strawberries. I, I st was starting to use a lot more cover crops in preparing the ground to plant. And um, one of the summers, not long after I took over a manager, we had a really good crop for us. And it was made possible by lots of people. But I remember being at a meeting, like a farm management meeting, and something was happening that was frustrating me. And I basically said, this crop did well because of me, Right? Because of my hard work and my research and my skills, that's why we had a good crop. Unfortunately, we never really had a good crop after that. <laughs> but I could feel my ego just swelling and getting frustrated with people around it because I wanted to know the reason why this did well was because of me. Success, no matter how small it is, it's a farm in the middle of nowhere in Illinois and the doctor's the surgeon's office, it has a way of giving us a feeling like we're in control. 
And Jesus has not just experienced massive success. He is experiencing massive expectations from other people. The crowds have an agenda for Jesus. The disciples have an agenda for Jesus. And Jesus takes that success, and he takes those expectations, and he goes to the Father in prayer. In Mark's gospel, we actually only see Jesus praying three times. But what scholars will point out is that each of these times that Jesus prays, he's at a critical juncture in his ministry. This is a critical juncture in his ministry. Jesus has gotten off to a blazing start in his ministry. And the question now as he lies in bed that night is what's next? What's next? Remember, Jesus is human. Jesus has decisions to make. Jesus needs discernment. What does he do? He goes to the Father in prayer. Like we need to see this, right? Jesus, the Son of God, goes to the Father in prayer for direction. Not when things are going wrong. He will He will go to the Father when when things feel out of control at Gethsemane. But right now, things are going well. He's having incredible success. And in that moment, he goes to the Father to discern what is next. I I think most of us know what it's like to be driven to our knees in prayer when we are desperate. When it feels like our world is spinning out of control, when we feel perhaps lonely, when nothing seems to be going our way. But what about the opposite? What about when we got that promotion at work that we longed so much for, and all of a sudden now we've got a lot more responsibility. We have employees who are working under us. What about, again, when we got that unexpected bonus that came in? When all of a sudden we're making more money than we've ever made before, and we have some extra cash on it. about when we released our work for you artists out there for you writers out there what about when you released your work your labor into the world and people started to praise you what was your next move was it to go to the father and discern the next move that should be our move it's not typically what we think of but it should be why not because success is bad in itself but because success brings particular challenges to disciples of Jesus that we often miss. I think we often, we'll give thanks to God for the success. That's not unusual problem. I'm talking about going to the Father and discerning what next with this success I have, with this promotion I have, with this cash I have, with this new accolade that I just received. See, the danger in success is that we start to imagine that the success is as a result of our own hard work, our own diligence, and our own wits. And Jesus understands this so clearly. I think he illustrates it perfectly in this parable of the rich fool that you probably know about. He, he tells this story about this certain rich man in Luke's gospel who has this incredible harvest. That's not the problem. The bumper crop is not the problem. But this crop is bursting at the seams. And this guy, he starts to ask him, see, the problem is, what do I do with this bumper crop? Like, that's the problem he has. I don't have room to store it all. You guys know this story. I don't have room to store it all. So he begins to talk to himself. And you'll notice in that parable, it's a lot of self-referential stuff that the guy does. Here's what I'll do, he says. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'm going surplu- to store my surplus grains. And I'm going to say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is a perfect example of what we tend to do when we have success. It makes us self-referential. Right? The man has incredible success. That's not the problem. He has a bumper crop. 
That's not the problem. The abundant harvest is not a problem. That is, thanks be to God for that abundant harvest. The problem is, what does he do next with that harvest? And he says, here's what I'll do. Here's what I'll say to myself. Here's how I'll live, right? The abundant harvest, the success turns him inward. It gives him a sense that he's in control and that he knows uh, what's going to happen in his future. And of course, we know, if you know that parable, that's not what happens. God says, you fool, your life's going to be taken from you this evening. And then who's going to get all that bumper crop you had? Right? This is part of why... Uh, money and power and success are so intoxicating to us, and they are because they give us a feeling like we're in control, that we are masters of our own fate, that we are captains of our own soul. And this parable reminds us you are a fool if you think that, if you think that your success makes you in control. Jesus thankfully models to us something different. Jesus experiences success that we could only, we could not even, we can't even get our minds around a fraction of what Jesus, if we did one thing that Jesus did, our egos would be so big, it would be incredible. Jesus does all that. What does Jesus do? He takes his success to the Father. He takes that praise he's received to the Father. He does not become self-referential. He becomes the opposite. He goes to the Father in prayer. And following that prayer, he comes to a surprising conclusion that it's time to go somewhere else. I remember the, the disciples, they have expectations about what Jesus should do with this success. But Jesus isn't, he's not, this isn't going to be a popularity contest. This isn't going to be, I'm going I'm to listen to what you disciples think, and then I'm going to do. Jesus discerns that his mission is not to be primarily a wonder worker, but to proclaim the kingdom of God. Right? Popularity polls are not going to determine Jesus' agenda. The disciples are not going to help Jesus discern what to do next. The crowds are not going to help Jesus discern what to do next. As I mentioned, in Mark's gospel, we only have a few times that Jesus goes off and prays, but Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So there's a good chance that this was the pattern. We don't know for sure. This was the pattern Jesus did. He would wake up early in the morning. While it was still dark, he would go off by himself into a solitary place and pray. One of the, as, we, as followers of Jesus, those of you who are followers of Jesus, one of the things that we, is essential to our discipleship journey is to figure out a rhythm, a routine of daily placing ourselves before God. Ronald Rollheiser says, um, there's one ultimate rule for prayer, and this rule has nothing to do with method, nothing to do with content, it's you show up. You show up. You show up. At its most basic... Prayer is this space where we communicate and commune with the Father, and there's lots of ways we do it, but we've got to show up. I know, I know, we, I know, we're, I know we think we're busy. I, I get it. I don't think we're as busy. I don't think we have as much going on as Jesus did. <laughs> Maybe you do. I don't have as much going on in my life as Jesus did. Jesus has a whole town back there that's waiting for him. So there's, re there's good reasons why we don't pray, and, and one of the biggest ones is we just don't desire to pray. But let's at least set that aside, that we're too busy to pray. Let's at least not do that. Let's, we can, that's just not going to help us at all. We have time to pray. We can go into some of the other stuff. But let's look at Jesus' model. Jesus had time to pray. I think we have time to pray. And we need to get into that practice. Here's why. Because when things go bad, we're going to be driven to our knees in prayer, most of us. That's non-negotiable. That's just what we do. 
But this puts us into a practice where we start to place ourselves before God when things are going well, when we're killing it at work, when we're doing really good at school. If we're in that rhythm of going before God every day, now we're placing that before the Father. I was listening to recently to a, a pastor interviewed in a podcast. And so this guy, he's, a, he's really well-known in the Christian world, best-selling author. He's experienced what most people would say is tremendous success. Okay? So he's sharing with this guy in the interview about um, how he was part of a community of accountability where he was doing life with this community, and they were confessing their sins to one another. And he shared in this conversation that one of the practices he had was with, I think, two other guys. They would work on their budgets together. Right? They'd sit down, beginning of the year, all work on their budgets together. That's, that's, that's a form of accountability. But this is what I also said. He said any purchase over $1,000, they would have to get approval for each other. And the interview kind of like, he kind of balked at that. He was like, ah. <laughs> like most people, oh, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that. With, you know, what if they're spending their money on a car and I want to go on a vacation? And he just starts spending all these reasons why, why that, oh, I don't know about that. And this is what the guy said, the famous guy said. He said, I didn't do my budget with Matt each year because I'm just trying to follow some rule or so someone would not let me buy some furniture I wanted. I did it because I just realized that, listen to this, I live in a gross age of materialism, and the older I get, the more money I'm making, and I could see it destroy my heart and numb my spirit. I want to read that line to you again. I did it because I realized I live in a gross age of materialism, and the older I get, the more money I'm making, I could see it destroy my heart and numb my spirit. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, I need help, I need accountability, I need discernment, not because I'm failing, because I'm experiencing incredible success. How often do you and I do that? Guys, I need, in my community, I need help because I'm doing really well right now. And there's a danger that this money I'm making can destroy my heart and numb my spirit. Guys, I'm really doing well with my work, and I'm sensing that it's increasing my ego, and I need help, I need accountability, I need discernment. I'm not saying success is bad at all. We should celebrate each other's success. I actually think more, we should do more as a community to celebrate when somebody has a success at their work or in their life. I don't think we do enough to do that in our worship, right? Back in the Old Testament, when they had a really good harvest, they would bring the fruit of their labor, and it would be right there in front of everyone. They'd bring their wine and oil, their grain, their labor, their firstborns, and they would feast. The Bible has no problem with celebrating. But they brought that success to the Lord. That's the difference. What are you doing with your success? Are you bringing it to the Father? Are you bringing it to the Lord? Are you saying, God, I, I'm, I'm doing well right now. What, am I, what do I do with this success? What do I do with this money that I came into? What do I do with this authority now? I've got people working for me in my business, God. What do I do with that authority? God, I just got a promotion. What do I do with that promotion? Help me discern what to do. Thank the Lord for that, absolutely. But go farther than that. Ask the Lord, what do I do with this success? 
If you and I are serious about putting our lives under the lordship of Jesus, we will not just put our problems under the lordship of Jesus, we will put our successes under the lordship of Jesus. That's different. That's harder. Because part of us says, ah, that's my success. I'll give the Lord my problem. I'll give him my prayer request. I'll go to him when I need it. But the success, that's mine. The money, that's mine. If Jesus needed help in discerning his success, do we need help discerning our success? Failure has a way. Jesus doesn't seem that concerned in the Gospels about failure. It's not that Jesus wants people to fail, but Jesus, is pretty, Jesus knows that failure tends to drive us to God. I see that again and again as a pastor. When somebody, oftentimes it's around death, when you think that the person will be struggling or an accident, they'll be struggling with the idea of God, that's actually when they're most open to God. I found that as a pastor, after the death of someone, it's that's when the family starts often wrestling with questions about God. Success does the opposite. You bring two people into this, one is killing it and one is failure. Both need pastoral care. I'm more concerned about the one killing it. Because there's temptations there that are very, very pernicious and can easily get away. That's one of the things I want. We've we got to bring our whole lives before the Lord. We've got to bring our failures, and we've got to bring our successes. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is that just Jesus gets away from the noise. Remember, there's all this noise happening here. There's the noise of the disciples. What are you doing? What are you doing, Jesus? There's the crowd noise. Come heal, come heal, come heal. Jesus goes off to a solitary place by himself. We live in a world of chatter. We live in a world of noise. Jesus did not live in that world, and he had to get in a solitary place. Think about our world where we have a constant chatter coming to us. That chatter can come to you from your news feed, from your social media feed. That can come to you from Fox News. That can come from you from CNN, the New York Times. That can come from you from podcasts. Wherever your drug of choice is, <laughs> mine is podcasts. You guys are consuming too. I know you do. Wherever you're tempted to just feed, I am, I, I'm not with podcasts. I could just like take in podcasts all, the day, all day long. Here's the problem. It's constant chatter. It's constant noise. And you never allow yourself to get away from the noise, from the chatter, to hear what God is trying to say. Right? Jesus looks foolish to get up in the middle of the night and go off to himself. But I think he's teaching us something. We need to get away from the chatter at times so we can actually hear the voice of God. And here's the good, here's the good news here. There's lots of good news. The Father doesn't leave Jesus alone. Right? Jesus was baptized earlier in Mark. He's told that he's the beloved. The, the, the Father showers the love on the Son. But it's not like then the Son goes off on mission and the Father's like, I'll see you when you're back up in heaven after the ascension. Now, the Father is with Jesus every step of the way because Jesus goes to the Father. And the Father helps Jesus discern what to do with that success. And that's hopeful for us. That means that, that God is not only going to meet us in our problems, but that God is going to meet us in our success. And then if we continually put ourselves before God day after day, he's going to guide us. We're not alone on this journey as disciples. He will meet us in failure, and he will meet us in success.
Let's pray. God, I just thank you that you do not leave us alone. You left us an incredible example, Lord. A fully human person who shows us what it actually looks like to live a fully human life, Lord. And what a beautiful life it is, Lord. As we go back to the scriptures and we watch Jesus, may we be in awe again and again at what a beautiful life Jesus lives. At those things that would derail most of us that Jesus resists because he's strengthened by you, because he seeks discernment for you. May we see that, Lord, and may we then follow that. May we bring you our failures, our needs, and our successes, Lord, trusting, Lord, that you do not leave us alone. You left us Jesus' example, and you left us your spirit to commune with you. Lord, I just pray for wisdom and discernment for each person here uh, as they discern their own successes. In Jesus' name, amen.